Would you pray with me, please? Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you for today. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering together. We thank you for your word read to us. I pray you to give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and the willingness to act upon the teaching of our scriptures. I pray you to be glorified in our midst today and that you would do in us all that you have planned to do. We pray and give all things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, please uh, open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. You can also use your inserts, uh, that is, in your bulletins. You can also use your phones or wherever you have the Bible. Uh, you can go ahead and do that. I think it's important uh, to have it open. To, to, to the passage, so that when I say something that you feel like you want to read what it actually says, that you would take the time to do that. So please uh, have your Bibles uh, ready. Um, we are in chapter 7, and, and the chapter uh, begins with these words. Now, when he, Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people... He entered Capernaum. He entered Capernaum. So, as the chapter begins, um, as the chapter begins, we don't, we have Jesus in the surrounding areas of Capernaum. Uh, you see up in the map where the city of Capernaum is, uh, the red dot, and I have underlined the name, uh, it's a sea, the Sea of Galilee is the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is somehow, as we move from chapter 6 to chapter 7, he's in the surrounding areas of Capernaum. And a couple of things he has done in chapter 6 is, one, Jesus had been followed by a number of people who wanted to be his disciples people that were following him. We know later in, in Luke that he sends out 70, so I don't know whether some of these were part of the 70, but of the many people that were following Jesus, he goes up to a mountain and he prays that the Lord his Father would guide him with who should he choose to be his closest disciples. And so when he comes down from the mountain, from the multitude of people that he's seen, he chooses the twelve. And then in chapter 6, you actually see the name of all twelve of the disciples that he has called to himself. Having chosen the twelve and having the people around him, 
Jesus begins to tell them or to preach to them what in Matthew we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 in Luke is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the same as we, it appears in Matthew, uh, but the reason for that is that two different people hear the same story and the same event and the same sermon, and they put it differently. I mean, I preach a sermon, and if I ask Tim, for example, in the back to come up and tell us what I preach, and then I ask Lori to come later, they might have a different interpretation of what I said. They may not use the same words. In fact, sometimes I take communion to the sick with some of you. Well, let's say when I go and, and I'm a lamb, and I turn to the person that is with me, and I say, okay, share with the person that didn't come to church what my sermon was. And you won't believe what sometimes they say. Okay? But it's beautiful to see how people interpret the things that I say, and sometimes I ask myself, did I really say that? <laughs> so, what we have here is we have the Gospel of Luke, we have the Gospel of Matthew, we have the different Gospels, and since we are looking at Luke at, at this moment, uh, Luke uh, gives his account of the Sermon on the Mount on chapter 6. And then, as, again, as chapter 7 begins, it says, Now when he concluded all his sayings, all that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the hearing of the people, then he entered the city of Capernaum. He entered the city of Capernaum. Now you all know where the city of Capernaum is, because I'm showing it to you in the map. But I think you all need to understand that the city of Capernaum was a very important city in the life of Jesus. In fact, the city of Capernaum is probably one of the cities most mentioned in all of the Gospels. The city of Capernaum is where Peter and, and Andrew and probably John and, and James uh, may have grown up fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And in the city of Capernaum is where Peter and, and Andrew seem to have had a home. Remember when Jesus goes into the house and, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick and he heals her of the fever? Well, the city of Capernaum kind of becomes, and this particular house kind of becomes the hub for Jesus' ministry. From the city of Capernaum, he goes every which way, but he always ends up kind of returning to the city of Capernaum. Archaeologically, a church has been found in the city of Capernaum. The remains of a church have been found that as archaeologists have dug through it, it is believed that the church was built upon a prior existing house. Because it shows the rooms and the living rooms and this and that. And upon that structure that probably existed years before, a new church or a church had been built. 
which is now in ruins, of course, because of the passing of time. It is believed by many that that was the house that had belonged to Peter and Andrew and the family, and that eventually, because it was the hub of Jesus' ministry, a church had been built on the site. So archaeologically, it may have been that this house is where Jesus had come very often to meet with his disciples in the city of Capernaum. So I want you to always have in mind, whenever you hear the city of Capernaum, that you realize this is the hub place, the base from where Jesus went and did a lot of ministry, whether it's on the Decapolis, whether it's in Tyre and Sidon, or Caesarea Philippi, or Nazareth, or Nain, or any of those things, but he always kept returning to Capernaum. So it's a very important city, and that's where we find Jesus today. Near the city of Capernaum, we don't know exactly where, but near the city of Capernaum, there must have been a Roman garrison. A Roman garrison of some sort with its own centurions. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier who commanded and led at least 100 men. That's where you get the the word centurion. It means 100. This man was probably a man of war. It was a man who had seen lots of battle and had been identified by his superiors or generals to be given this position as a centurion. So in the vicinities of Capernaum, there must have been a garrison of soldiers. In fact, archaeologically, we can tell you that there were at least two major legions in the areas both of Galilee and of Jerusalem. A legion is probably somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 men, probably closer to 5,000 if not more. The traces of two legions have been found archaeologically. The seventh legion, the famous seventh legion, was stationed in Jerusalem. But the sixth legion, we know that was stationed in the area of Galilee. Why? Well... The area of Galilee, especially on the east side toward the Decapolis, it was filled with rebel, Jewish rebels, zealots, that were attempting always to overthrow the oppression of the Roman army. So you can imagine why a legion would be placed in that area. In fact, one of the major revolts of Israel, which was known as the Bar Kokhba, rebellion or revolution started over here in Galilee. And that had to be quenched and eventually they ran over to Masada in the east on the south of Jerusalem and eventually all killed. But in this area of Capernaum we know archaeologically that there was a garrison of at least a legion. So when, when we find in the story, 
here that Jesus is approached by a centurion, we can see that this man was probably part of the sixth legion and probably had a home somewhere near Capernaum. This story, this event of the life of Jesus, which, which is so magnificent and so beautiful, is found also in Matthew, and it's also found in John. We don't find it in Mark. But we find pretty much the same story both in Matthew and in John. John chapter 4, and I believe it's in Matthew uh, chapter 8. However, there are some differences between these stories, because that's how Luke received it. If you remember when, G when Luke starts his gospel, and when he starts the book of Acts, he says that he did a very ample research on all the historical events related to the life of Jesus. And Luke writes it the way he receives it, but the story itself is the same and corroborated by both Matthew and by John, with a few differences. In Matthew, for example, the difference between uh, Matthew's account and Luke's is that in Matthew, the centurion is the one that comes to Jesus. While in Luke, he sends a delegation. In Matthew, it is the centurion that goes to Jesus. Matthew adds that the servant of this centurion was paralyzed at home and in terrible distress. Luke tells us that he was sick and at the point of death. Well, those don't contradict each other. The man may very much have been paralyzed at home and in the verge of dying. But the way that both of them say what the condition of this servant was is a little different. Other than that, both Matthew and Luke tell exactly the same story. John is a little different from the other two. The main difference between John's account and Luke's account, if they are the same story, is that John tells us that it is the son of a very prominent individual who is sick and at the point of death. Not a servant, but the son. Okay. However, Matthew and Luke tell us that he was a servant very close to his heart. He may have been a, an adopted person. I don't know. But we know that the way they put it is a little different. John says he was the son of this very high individual who may certainly have been a centurion. Now, John tells us something that I find so beautiful... And I don't want to miss. I don't want you to miss it. John gives us some details that we don't find in either Matthew or Luke. This is what John says after he, you know, here's what he says. 
Jesus said to him, to the high official that came to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down to his house, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I just found that so beautiful. John tells us that the moment that Jesus said, Your son lives, though, though at a distance, the young man was immediately healed. And when the father or the centurion or the high official asked exactly what time did it happen, he knew that it was that very moment that Jesus had said, let there be healing, and there was healing. I, I just find that, that John tells us those details in John so beautiful. However... Because we are studying the Gospel of Luke, and we are focusing on the Gospel of Luke uh, through this year and until the end of the year, I'm going to focus my teaching today on the Gospel that was read, which was the Gospel of John, of Luke. There are several things here that I want you to notice in this story, which I think are important. First of all, I want you to notice that the centurion, having heard that Jesus was in the area, and having heard the stories of Jesus' teaching and miraculous healings, that what he does, according to Luke, is he sends a delegation, rather than the centurion going himself. He sends a delegation of some of the Jewish authorities, the Jewish elders of the city of Capernaum, to go speak to the Jewish rabbi, to the Jewish healer, to the Jewish teacher. So he sends Jews to speak to Jews in case Jesus might not want to see him because he is a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, he's a Roman soldier. So he so loves his servant or his son that he doesn't want to take a chance of Jesus rejecting him or saying to him, I only came for the Jewish people. So he sends Jewish leaders, Jewish elders of the town to go and speak to Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing that we all must notice is that this man 
did not reach the position of centurion because he was a wimp. This man is a Roman soldier. This man is a centurion, which means he's not weak in any way, shape, or form. This is a man who has seen battle, war, has swung the sword at any enemy of, of Rome. This is a man who had a leadership ability to lead 100 men and keep them all going in the same direction. This is a man of man. This is a Roman centurion. And I want you to notice that because I think it's very important. However, this man of war, this Roman centurion, also has acted toward the Jewish people in Capernaum with a tender heart. And when these leaders, these elders, come to Jesus, what they say to Jesus is that he should do the miracle because this centurion is worthy. He's worthy because he loves the Jewish nation. And not only that, he's worthy because he so loves the Jewish nation that he has built the synagogue in Capernaum. Probably at his own expense. So this centurion, though a man of war, has a heart toward the Jewish people and maybe toward the God of Israel. And so he has built in Capernaum their synagogue. Because the word is singular, it may mean that there's only one synagogue in Capernaum. And this man was the one that gave the money and had it built. Now, archaeologically, I can tell you, because I receive a magazine uh, quarterly, I believe, or bi-monthly, I don't remember when, but I think it's quarterly, it's the Biblical Archaeology Review. And there have been found the remains of a synagogue in the area of Capernaum. A synagogue that has been dated to much later than Jesus... But it may very well have been that one synagogue was built upon the remains of the other. And the deeper they go, they find remains of the synagogue that may be being referred to here in this passage. So, we know about this centurion that the Jewish leaders feel that he's worthy... And therefore, Jesus should grant his prayer and his desire to heal his servant. That's how they approach Jesus. And then we are told that Jesus goes with them. But as they're coming near the house of the centurion, Luke tells us, perhaps the centurion can see him at a distance... And Luke tells us that the centurion sent some of his friends that were with him at the house to intercept Jesus' coming and with a message. 
the Jewish leaders believe he was worthy, the centurion says to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Please, Lord, don't come any closer. I am unworthy that you would come to my home. I am unworthy to stand in your presence. I am not worthy, Lord. Just say it. Say the word. Say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Just say the word, Lord. Let it be. But please, let me tell you, this centurion's house was probably better house than any other house in the area. He still didn't feel that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his exalted being, that he was worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. I want you to notice that. He says, I am so not worthy that I will not presume to come to you. I sent a delegation because I don't think I'm worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Here's something that this centurion knew. This centurion understood authority. This centurion understood authority. He understood that Jesus had the authority, even at a distance, to say, let this be, and it would be. Let there be healing, and the servant would be healed. This servant, this centurion, understood authority. He understood who has it, he understood for what purpose, and he understood over whom. He says to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I know authority. I know that I'm a man under authority. My general says, go and fight, and I go and fight because I'm a man under authority. I tell my soldier, go, and he better go. I tell my soldier, come, and he better come. I tell my servant, do this, and he does it, because I know authority. And he says, and I know you have it. My authority may be positional. My authority may be a rank. But your authority is the authority of God. I'm not worthy that you would come into my house. I'm not worthy, Lord. In, in, in comparison to you, I bow down. I submit. Lord Jesus, I'm not worthy to come. Even to come to ask you or beg you for anything, I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy that you would approach my home, that you would enter my house. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And then Jesus makes this statement. Jesus makes this statement, which I think is the important, the important part of the passage. Jesus says, 
it, it says, Luke says that Jesus marveled. And Jesus said, I haven't found this much faith even in Israel. I haven't found this much faith even in Israel. Listen, Israel, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, should have been the first ones to recognize who Jesus was. Israel should have been the first to recognize the fulfillment of prophecies. Israel should have been the first one to hear the teachings of Jesus and understand the purity of the teaching and how Jesus was leading people to God. It was Israel who should have investigated at least the miracles and they would have found that Jesus was their Messiah. But what Israel did, at least the leaders, I'm not saying all the people, but the leadership felt threatened by Jesus and what they did is they started persecuting him. Israel should have been the first ones to lift up and, and proclaim and humble themselves before Jesus of Nazareth. But they didn't. It took a Gentile. It took a Roman soldier. It took a man of war. It took a man who has seen death and probably killed. It took that man to recognize that Jesus' authority was divine authority. It was a Roman soldier and a centurion who says to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would come. In comparison to you, Lord, my authority is nothing. Your authority is what I recognize. So Jesus says, I haven't found this much faith even in Israel. This is the most important part of the whole passage. Because the question I would have for you and for me today is, are we people under authority? Do we recognize the authority of Jesus over our lives? Can we say with this Roman soldier who has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of life, can we say with him, Lord, I am unworthy to receive your love. I am unworthy to be called your brother. I am unworthy to be a child of God. Whatever I have, whatever has been given to me is by grace and grace alone. It is by the love of God. Do we understand authority that who is it that tells us to go? Are we willing to go? Who is it that says to us, come? Are we willing to come? Who is it that says to us, do? And we say, yes, sir, as you desire. What we find in the Christian church at times is individuals who come to church to be entertained or to hear good stories, but they're not willing to go under the authority of Jesus Christ and be obedient to the words of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, and to the person of Jesus Christ. Do we understand authority? 
Is Jesus Christ just a teacher to you? Or is Jesus Christ the Son of God who has come into the world to lead us to the Father? Is Jesus Christ our King, our Lord, who sits in authority over our lives, over our homes, over our families? If He's not, then you're not considering Jesus in the fullness of who He is. Do we understand authority? Do we understand divine authority? And are we willing to submit and humble ourselves before the authority of Jesus Christ? Because that is what this passage is intending to teach us. It takes a Gentile. It takes a Roman soldier. It takes a man of war. It takes a man to teach the world how to approach Jesus, how to submit, how to humble ourselves, how to recognize His authority. In this story, we see the authority of Jesus. From a distance, He says, your son will be healed. Go. And at the very hour, according to John, that man received his healing and the fever left him and any paralysis left him. And if we look at the way, we look at it the way Luke tells us, he says that very moment, even from a distance, the man was healed. Jesus has the capacity and the authority to declare healing what he wants healed and forgiven what he wants forgiven. And he has the authority to tell the church and to tell the believers what they need to do. And you and I, need to learn to humble ourselves the way this centurion did and say, yes, Lord, at your command, I will do it. That's, that's today's passage. The question then becomes, what are you going to do with it? Are you just going to learn it and say, I know what happened with the centurion? Or are you going to apply it to your life? Authority. We are people under authority. Under the authority of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we may not always understand everything or perhaps even like everything that challenges us or that He tells us to do. But we, under authority, we say, yes, my King, my Lord, my God. With you, I can do all things. Strengthen me. You get it? Can I hear an amen? amen. That was too 